Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. We get letters, we get posts, and we have a section in the PowerCast forums now where people suggest the guests they want to hear. Indeed. And one of our guests says, get Boyd Bushman on. And I said, what? (laughs) And you know what? Well, so we investigated. And you know what? He has some interesting things to say. Could you tell us the odyssey? Well, all right. So... We had been provided his email address by one of our more active forum participants, and um, I sent him off an email, and I said, hey, we'd love to have you on our show. Come on. And he responded and said, yes. And what I find strange about that, Gene, is that I had originally seen footage of Boyd Bushman. Oh, I have to bring myself to say this now, and I will. Okay, let me just try not to laugh. Okay, I don't want to have the, the famous KK scream here. Let's just do no, it we're straight. Not, it's the famous, infamous, please. Infamous, excuse me. Yeah, well, yeah. it's famous yeah. and infamous. It's a combination of both. I'll have to do a token scream every episode now, and that will really freak right, out. We're getting more and more requests now. I mean, that's it. Oh, have, no, in fact, we're no, going to we're... sell your scream at eBay. Anyway, so I guess uh, Mr. Bushman had showed up in a David Sarita interview. I think it was from the From Here to Newark, I mean Andromeda, or something like that. I think it might have been in that quote-unquote mockumentary. Uh, (laughs) I can't help but laugh. Anyway, Sarita interviewed him. He was showing Sarita some sort of interesting stuff. And um, in doing some research on Bushman on the web, it's kind of odd, Gene. Apparently, Bushman is involved in some fairly high-end things, but digging up information on his past is is a little a little iffy. I mean, it, it, of course, we find out that reportedly he's an engineer and inventor at Lockheed Martin, was part of their Skunk Works project, but it was hard to really find anything significant. So I think we should ask him about his professional background, obviously, to get a better idea of who this man is, where his experience lies, what did he do at Lockheed Martin? I mean, It'll be interesting to see how much he tells us about that, because from what I gather, and and I I could be wrong about this, so I'll just say that uh, up front, but apparently he uh, is some friend of Sarita's family, or maybe even Sarita himself, and um, it looks like he doesn't do that many interviews. So it's interesting he's coming on our show. Obviously, uh, he didn't ask David Sarita about whether he should come on or not. Maybe they had a falling out. We don't know. I somehow doubt it. I'm, my guess is that Sarita's big falling out has been with Dan Aykroyd, but even that we don't we don't really know about. Ultimately, though, I think Bushman, just in terms of his experience at Lockheed Martin and perhaps what he witnessed, and that'll be really the push of our other questioning is, did he see anything extraterrestrial? You know, w- was he involved in Lockheed at a time when supposedly technology was handed over? So I'm curious to know if he ever interacted with Corso. I'm doubting it. But it'll be a a good thing to ask him. I mean, this should be an interesting interview unless it completely sucks. Okay, well, it could be an interview where we'll ask him three questions and we'll say goodbye. No, we don't. You know what? We haven't had anybody do that yet. Isn't that amazing? With all of our reputation and whatnot, we haven't had anybody come on, speak to us for five or ten minutes, and then bail out. It hasn't happened. Of course, it means it could happen at any moment. Well, the other thing is that we've never had a situation where... 
a guest has basically canceled after accepting an interview, but we've had a couple of situations where they weren't around. That's true. Oh, actually, there was one person we tried to get on the show who, because of our friendship with Royce Myers, declined. Uh, and that would be the guy, the lawyer who is in the purple wizard's robe, <laughs> Royce right. Myers. Whose name will go unmentioned. Yeah, we don't need to give him any other publicity. But no. yeah, he declined to come on the show because... We like Royce Myers, and, and he doesn't. Oh, gee, that's so grown up, don't you think? It's guilt by association. Yeah, well, you know, what else? Do you it's, it's not what we do, it's who our friends are. Yeah, I guess so. Without further ado, and not knowing what to expect, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, one way or the other, we have coming up next on the PowerCast, Boyd Bushman. Yeah. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the PowerCast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the PowerCast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, PowerCast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, that's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast Offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. With 
Boyd, we're curious to know about your professional background. In, in researching you on the Internet, it turns out there's not a lot of information about the kind of work that you did at Lockheed Martin. So let's start by asking you, how did you get involved in working at Lockheed Martin? What's what's your professional background? Well, let's see. There's always a story and then a cover story. I kind of say when, say when I came back from the show of Iran, I... Um, kind of went to some of my DOD friends and I said, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, he, they said, well, your missiles have killed so many of our pilots and destroyed so many of our airplanes. Why don't you go where we manufacture airplanes and teach them how not to die? So I said, well, Boeing or McDonnell Douglas at that time, are over to Fort Worth, Texas. It was General Dynamics at the time. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we're buying more airplanes from uh, General Dynamics than anyone else. And so I said, okay. And, you know, so in kind of a roundabout way, I ended out there. And um, during the last war, you haven't seen many airplanes fall from the sky, have you? Well, now let's get some uh, – I want to get a timeline here. When you say – when you came from – you said the Shah of Iran. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let, no, let's no, talk. Well, see, part of the, I actually started out way back when, and, and uh, it used to be that there was machine guns. I graduated in about 1962, and uh, it used to be that airplanes had machine guns in their wings, mm -hmm. and they would, they would strafe troops. Well, those were my uncles, and I didn't like that. I came out and... Um, and went to, to um, well, eventually to California to um, to the General Dynamics Division out there. And every time I say I did, it usually is three to five people, you understand. Right. We always get to uh, Anyhow, so um, I had been to the Hopi Indian snake dances, and I kept wondering what those pits in the rattlesnakes were. I finally found out, and so I, uh, there used to be a thing called rocket, and uh, wherever you pointed it, you just sent it. And uh, so I took uh, the infrared sensors like a snake, and I put it on the end of a rocket, and I told them to kind of look at the sky, and if it saw anything that was hot, to track it. You know, you just simply uncage it, and the eyeball looks at whatever's up there, and it'll follow the airplane, regardless where the point the the soldier is pointing his tube. And uh, then they will buzz like a rattlesnake back to the pilot, to the soldier, and say, "Hey, guy, is that airplane a friend or a friend or a foe?" And if it's a foe, then they said, "Fine." launch me and immediately it jumps out like a rattlesnake about 30 feet so it doesn't burn the uh, the soldier ignites and takes off and if an airplane turns about seven to nine g's the pilot will faint right well i designed the missile uh, so that it could pull 80 g's and mm -hmm. literally destroys any airplane and so airplanes started falling from the sky from the time that I, capital I, did that, with, which is our group, and it always has been. And then after that, I went over with Howard Hughes and, and took 186 uh, linear infrared detectors. It used to be called thermography and things like that. We invented the word infrared, and uh, we orbited those and placed them up in satellites. And your weather satellites that you see, that you see, they give you 24 hours of cloud cover, right? Well, where is night? You don't see any night because in infrared, midnight and noonday are identical. And so they're showing you that. And then uh, my military satellites could determine, and well, basically you can determine if it's a male or female driving a car from 190 miles away. Is that okay? Jeez. So, so you see, I had the missiles, 
that are all my fault, and that's the stinger and red eye, and, and that the versions of it were copied as a sidewinder on those things. And so later on in life, when I came back to the DOD and asked them what I should do, anyhow, so I did. I, I developed a countermeasure to my own brain kids, and um, the, the current war, we survived quite well against my own missiles that the Russians and everybody else have copied exactly. Infrared technology is something you had a tremendous involvement with then. Well, it is uh, I'm an equal opportunity employer. What what happens is uh, I'm I'm really a senior scientist. A senior scientist is a person that is going to do something that humans have never done before. Okay, and so he can't know what he's doing. Then no one's ever come to me and say do this, do that. But they've always come to me and said, can this be done? And I generally want to tell them, well, you thought of it, so it's done. But but <laughs> I generally said it's kind of infeasible or expensive or something. I said, but if you consider this, which is a cousin, or this, which is an uncle, to that technology, and they say, oh, you mean we can do that? I say, yeah, head on. And so and so they head on. But I have um, I have a total of 27 patents. And they spread the technologies from from laser applications to, to uh, acoustic applications to, but they all apply directly or indirectly, ultimately to death and destruction. Well, how do because, you feel about that? I mean, that's a that's a pretty heavy thing to say, Boyd. I mean, what? Well, no, no, well I, I, uh, you asked, so I tell you, I I basically said, how do you motivate humans? And I found out that you can use love. If you have three generations of Christians that are ready to give their lives to the lions, then all of a sudden Rome changes from being heathen to being Christian, right? But if I want to change a person's mind faster than three generations, mm -hmm. if I use fear, it's wonderful. And if I go to a general, which I have many times, and I say, Dear General, you're going to lose the next war. And he said, Why would you say that? And then I prove it to him. Glowing view graphs, the whole process. And he said, "How? What do I do about that?" I said, "Glad you asked." And in ten minutes, I show him the recovery program. And then he said, "How much you guys want?" And I'd say, "You know, between five to sixteen million." And we drag it back and and do the development on the recovery program in order to stay ahead of whatever the current enemy is. My satellites can see Iraq, all of it, 24 hours a day, and they are keeping track of it now. Is that nice? I that's so. pretty intense. Yeah, now that's pretty intense. No Not question. only that, but the the busiest airport in the world is located in Balad, Iraq, right now. There's an airplane taking off or landing every 90 seconds, and none of my airplanes, the F-16s and and the rest, carry people. They only have have a laser guided or GPS or regular bombs under their wings, and they go out full and they come back empty. Well, we uh, in Korea we lost we lost 2000 men per month in Korea between 1500 to 2000 men per month. Oh, we've only lost 3000 in the whole darn war. Well, that's because of my technology. My technology's come in the the M1 tank has my infrared night sights. My the soldiers have have my well they basically are night vision goggles. And they they attack at night. They literally go in and penetrate the whole enemy area at midnight, where the enemy's blind. 
And uh, so, and Kevlar vest and a few of the rest of the things, we, we come out surviving quite well. Nevertheless... Yeah, well, of course, and not to turn, you know, we're not going to turn the Paracast into the political show right now, but <laughs> of course, it's always interesting that the Iraq war is called a war. In fact, it's an occupation, but that's neither here nor there. Usually, uh, from my understanding, a war involves two armies. Oh, to me, it's just, it's just my stuff. No, no, I, I understand that. Yeah, no, I understand. No, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I understand. My, it's, the question is, is where are my brain kids right now? Right now, uh, for every well, what we're really interested in, Boyd, is what's your you know what's your background, and specifically oh. what what I kind of want to get a feel for here. I think Gene and I agree that we want to lead this into uh, exotic propulsion systems. Oh, which okay. Is, mm-hmm. That's is something we know that you're you're known for, and of course how that relates to the whole UFO question. I think that's really what I, I think we'd like to focus on if we can, oh, that's, if, that's, uh, that's, if that's possible. No. <laughs> You can run for a politician as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I don't know how you put that last, last sentence together, but that was wonderful. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Actually, he has a trademark symbol after his sentences, and what we do is we send it off to the office, the trademark <laughs> office, and we're just yeah. going broke getting his symbols trademarked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see. No, but wait. No, well, well, okay. I'll, uh, I've kept track of... Well, much technology that went all kinds of directions. And the whole concept of, of uh, advanced propulsion has fit into the whole process. And uh, because I, um, first of all, started to detect it so I could destroy it, and then I began to get excited to how it's putting put together. Nevertheless, I've had, uh, oh, I don't know, one of my patents is an acoustic thing, so that out of acoustics I, I have a little item that just picks up and flies around the lab without a propeller, without any chemistry, without anything that's normal. And then later on, I, I kind of took a, a, a look at the Gulf Breeze sightings. Yeah. And uh, and I, I said, I looked at it because it's the only ones that you can really see close. And, and uh, I looked at it closely, and then about 3 o'clock in the morning, thoughts came to me like they normally do. I, I believe that there is no such thing as nonsense that if you have a thought, it's a friend, and it comes in. And many times I tell them that that uh, I'm not smart enough to understand what they said, but I've taken notes, and I'll table the issue, and then we'll work on it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I took notes for about three nights, and all of a sudden I realized that I could do that. And so I, uh, I, I uh, put together a coil, and I put it above a piece of aluminum, and I plugged it into standard house current, and it immediately lifted up directly and floated around quite well. And uh, it was uh, verifying that all I have to do is have a generator and make a make a bigger, and and I can make a, a Gulf Breeze UFO, which makes me kind of believe that somebody else did it. In other words, that it's human technology we're talking about, not extraterrestrial technology. Well, all I know is it could be. Is it, it, it certainly could be, and not only that, it could stay around here. I get UFO pictures from my emails from all over, and my second rule, the first one was positive cash flow, but my second rule is to follow the uh, follow the data theory. Be damned. When I got my degrees, I began to find that nature was telling me things that didn't follow theory, and I would put these things under the carpet because everybody wouldn't like that. But after a while, I decided that was not moral, that literally if nature talks to you and it's outside of data, 
outside of theory. You should follow your data. And so I uh, basically started gathering data and, and doing things that have been well outside of, of physics, mathematics, and chemistry for a long time. And every time I did so and verified that it worked, then I, rather than write a progress report, I just put in for another another patent, and uh, the United States government granted it. But uh, I also found if you take a magnet and you take a plastic tube and you let the magnet fall through the center of the tube directly down, it just goes zip. But if it happens to be a copper tube, now, copper doesn't care a thing about magnetism, according to everybody. But if you let you let it zip down the down the copper tube, it takes oh five to eight seconds to fall nothing more than two feet. In other words, something's happening that defies gravity is interplaying with magnetism and copper somehow, and basically slowing down the fall of a magnet. Now, now, hold on, is it slowing down the rate of acceleration of the magnet? Well, gravity is an acceleration, of course. Exactly, exactly. And so it's kind of shutting it off. Because of that, I simply said, well, okay, let me go back to the very beginning. And uh, Galileo walked up his uh, leaning tower of Pisa and dropped uh, two rocks. One is a little bit larger than the other. Mm -hmm. And they fell to the ground at the same time. Sure. So I uh, got two rocks, but on the inside of one of them, I put two opposing magnets, you know, north facing north, and then the other one looked identical. And uh, so I went to the leaning tower of, oh, building 500 in, in uh, Lockheed, and I got some guys down the bottom and, and folded up some cardboard boxes, and, and I uh, let them fall. And this didn't have any tubes or anything, just plain old fall, just like Galileo did. And I told them that if one fell ahead of the other, to pick it up and hand it to me when I came down on the elevator. So I came zipping down the five floors, and, and um, every time of every trial that exceeded, oh, 12 or so, they always handed me the one that had no magnets in it. In other mm. words, basically, magnets were magnets. Yeah, magnetism was acting like a parachute or something, which was interacting with gravity. Now these were uh, not electromagnets, right? These are oh, just no. regular right, magnets. Right. Yeah, that's right. I had some neodymiums, but that's they were just a little bit stronger. But right. that's okay. Yeah, you know, it it worked. And of course, when I look back on Cyril's work, Cyril back in about oh I don't know, fifty or so. He had some rotating magnet things that were going around, and and uh, he all of a sudden had a device that lifted up, and it looked like a spacecraft, exactly. And then we go up to Hamill's work over in Canada, and he had magnets and a little bit of rotation involved, and and he lost his because it went up. And then if I I walk over to Hutchinson and his work, he. He never does quite do that, but he it's, it's a cousin of that caused his stuff to float in the air. Then I come down to my buddy Rex Webb over here, and uh, I gave him a bowling ball. And he has an apparatus that doesn't plug into anywhere, and it points an energy beam. And I gave him a bowling ball, non-conductor, slinky, you know, the regular slinkies that go downstairs and things like Metal that. Metal slinky, right? Yeah, I, wa I wanted I wanted it to be metallic. Right, right. So I gave him one of those, and I gave him something else. And, I, and uh, he aimed his beam, and, and all of a sudden they picked up and floated. 
And then his wife came in from the kitchen toward the living room, and not knowing where the beam was, she all of a sudden found herself floating four feet above the ground. Really? I asked her. I asked her if afterwards how she was doing, how she liked that, and she said, "I prefer to walk." But at, but at any rate, I, I think I would too if I walked into a place and started floating. <laughs> hey. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You are Luke Arrogance with Jesus and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have senior scientist Boyd Bushman in here. Now, I just want to ask you a really silly question, Boyd, or maybe no questions are silly, only the answers, but that is, how does one become a senior scientist? Is this by age or wisdom or what? Well, it's a way to give me a shut up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the senior scientist title, first of all, came on with Howard Hughes. It's just because I was putting out more things than anyone else around. So I was basically getting all of the infrared stuff and the liaison officer back and forth between Santa Barbara to, to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is where Howard had his had his aircraft, his longest private airfield in the world, and uh, up in Santa Barbara is where they were making my infrared detectors. Uh, I brought him back and forth, and then nevertheless, he gave me the title of the senior research engineer, and by the time I got over to Lockheed, they just simply migrated over the senior scientists. The majority of the places don't have the title anymore, but I've been retired for, retired but not immobile at all for the last, uh, Oh, three years, and um, but they still call me and they simply say, "Okay, what did we plan to do here?" <laughs> they don't you remember? It was this and this and this, etc. And of course, the majority of my work has been in the dark world, as you'd suspect. And therefore, as you try to pull up stuff, you can find everybody else's comments on me, but not me. Right. And um, so you understand. But at any rate, I ultimately think you are a senior scientist. If you are doing things that other people have never done, in other words, if it's original work. My third rule is to attack vigorously where there's no competition. I found that in the Serengeti, uh, lions can kill zebras and gazelles and those types of things. It's fresh meat. But for every lion, there are five hyenas. And for every hyena, there are five vultures. And so if you look over to a carcass and only see hyenas and vultures, you know that the useful life of that product is about dead. Don't apply for a job there. <laughs> it's only when you can do original stuff that you can actually build a new company or expand the whole division of a company to be something useful and selective. And so I basically go where 
Well, as I said, I think I started an investigation years ago, very, very simple one, asking only one question, and that is, is there life after birth? <laughs> and, well, I, I did. And, and I scientifically and objectively studied that. And after three years, I decided there wasn't enough data. <laughs> there was enough verification that there was. Oh, come and then on. I, and then I found, <laughs> oh, no, I found that dogs, when they're born, are born with their eyes closed, you know, mm-hmm. and for about three weeks. And then they open their eyes and they go around and do dog things. Well, in actuality, the humans are born and they don't make up their mind what they're supposed to be doing until they're about 18 or so. In other words, our eyes just start if, if then, yeah. If yeah, then. if then, exactly. And the question is, is when do they get insight into their destiny, which is an obsession, and once they start working there, then indeed they are human. They are alive. Their destiny probably has more life than their eyes over, you know, head, shoulders, feet, knees, and toes. The obsession of what you should be doing for life is much more important than standing up and eating. Well, yeah, but now, you know, one could, could, of course, say that there are many examples where people had the clear idea of who they're going to be. You know, by all accounts, uh, Mozart was a musical prodigy at a very young age. So certainly there are exceptions to, to every theory. But, boy, I want to jump back for a minute. Um, well, that, thanks, to, thanks to his dad. Well, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but that's okay. Str- yeah, no, no. I, I, sometimes external motivation is what uh, makes things happen. That yeah. We can certainly say that for many adults as well. No, but, but it is true. Eventually, people, once they get turned on, they will respect their thoughts, and they will follow what their thoughts are telling them to do, and then they'll respect their obsessions. Obsessions have emotion. Uh, with thoughts you can reason with. You can say, now, what did you say? And you can go back and forth. But if you have an obsession, it's full of emotion. And you, sure. have, to, you have to work it out with time. That's the reason people get married. It ain't a rational thing to do at all. But, <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> but, it, but it indeed is, is done a lot because there are obsessions. And obsessions are as valid as thoughts are. But thoughts, my thoughts turn into patterns. My obsessions... I mean, you know, I've been married to one for a long time, and then they had little obsessions around. You understand. <laughs> but <laughs> Now, Boyd, I, I want to get back for a moment, though, because uh, the obsession of the Paracast is to, you know, try to understand the realm of the paranormal in as much as it's even possible. A moment ago, you said that you went over to a friend's well, okay. house. Well, well, let me, well, let me reinforce what you're doing. Well, but no, before uh, you do that, though, no, I've I got to ask you a question. Important, before okay. we lose the thread here. Okay. A few moments ago, you were talking about the friend of yours who had this beam that I think you said had no energy source or it wasn't plugged into anything. Right. And and that this beam hit his wife and his wife raised you're up right. the air. All right. right. Now, if I'm a typical listener of the Paracast, if I'm our typical audience like us, are skeptical thinkers. And so when we hear something like that, we think, oh, really, you, you saw this? Where's the footage of this? Where can I see this happening? So, uh, and this kind of gets us into really what we want to talk to you about, Boyd, which is that when you hear about something like this, this sounds like, I mean, we, we've all seen, you know, the little video clips of things like superconductivity and the little cube floating up above the, uh, no, I know, but it, it goes back to, to what is new. You know, what, when you actually have a new invention, mm-hmm. uh, what is new? If uh, all of a sudden there are a whole bunch of people just wandering along, 
and all of a sudden somebody says, hey, I think I'll go and take one of those four-legged things and I will tame it and I will ride it. And he had to invent the word ride because it had never been done before. And all of a sudden people said, what are you doing? He says, I'm riding a horse. And everybody began to copy him. And the invention of riding a horse was that simple. Not only that, but all truths can usually be defined in three paragraphs, two pictures, one equation if you're lucky, and which all can fit in one page. But if you don't know what you're doing, then you must, you, you know, you've been working on something. You must write a book that's 330 pages long. And in the last paragraph you say, and here's how close I came. Well, okay, on our stuff, well, I don't have the I don't have the page put together. But when I do, the beam will be defined in words that don't exist. The power source that comes in will be defined in words that don't exist. And the applications. I was a I was a science judge in a science fair, an international science fair, high school things where the kids came from from the entire world. Sure. You know. I came over and, and we uh, went through and judged the science fair. But afterwards, we kind of had to uh, get together and, and we had uh, 10 Nobel Prize winners give us a presentation. They did, and then they began to accept the questions. And uh, the questions were really stupid. Like one of them was, why are there not women among you? I realize some people say that's a great question, but to them, it isn't something that they could or should be asked to answer. Nevertheless, so I, uh, I told, I told my, my doctor buddy next to me, I said, you know, to take 10 Nobel Prize winners and ask these stupid questions is ridiculous. So my buddy raised his hand and stood up, raised his hand, and they pointed at him, and he says, he has a question for you, <laughs> meaning me. And so, and so I got up and I, I said, well, my question, my, my management, kind of wants me to tell them more or less within the next two to five years what's coming down the pike and what things will be in advanced technology. And I said, if they have a positive IQ, it must be an intelligent question. And so I think I could hand it off to you in the next five to ten years. What do you see coming? So they they were relieved because they could talk among themselves and not have to answer questions for 15 minutes. And they, they assigned one of them to stand up, and, and he looked at me and he said, well, in the next 15 to 20 years, that's what they did to it, in the next 15 to 20 years, we know that there will be many, many new technologies. There will be many, many new uh, new things that come out that are actually new and and wonderful, but we know that none of them will de be developed by technologies that we now have. It will require the development of a new technology to develop a new product, and that's what we're doing. Is we're basically trying to figure out what new technology is. See, I. I, um, in the area of levitation, for example, and the area of energy, I went back to Einstein's derivation of E equals MC squared. And then uh, in that equation, the, the other side of it, he has, he has 1 over the square root of 1 minus V squared over C squared. Okay. And uh, so I went back to Newton, who developed the um, binary series. If you take that expression of 1 over the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared out of parens, 
and you and you put it in the binary expression, you all of a sudden find a miracle that it actually in the, the expression series says that there are there's a force of the atom equals mc squared. There's kinetic energy, and then there's the weak force, which is you know, you know protons and, and electrons, and then there's the electrical and magnetic force. And then there's the gravitational force, but the series says that there should be three other forces and maybe more that are beyond that. Well, my friends who are studying astronomy have looked out at the galaxies, and they have found that the galaxies are pushing each other apart. So when I get enough mass to have a moon, I get gravity. When I get more mass to have a sun, I can have gravity that keeps planets around. But evidently, when I get more mass, like the size of a galaxy, anti-gravity, the thing beyond gravity, mm -hmm. there are three of them. The thing beyond gravity turns on and pushes galaxies apart. Isn't that wonderful? How does this and, relate? And there, are two other, and there are two others that have no name. But we do know now what the mathematical equation looks like and what their characteristics are. And boy, how does, how does this relate to dark matter and dark energy? Does this factor into it? They're cousins. We have 96% uh, dark energy and a little bit of dark matter and then uh, whatever is left, a small percentage of it, which is mass. But it's okay. Matter and, matter and energy are kind of interchangeable in ways, you know. Right. So it's so it's it's all fine. So but, when uh, we talk about let, let, let me just let me again just just roll back for a moment. When we talk about anti gravity, given that gravity is a very weak force, and the reason that it can really manifest is because of the mass, the size of the objects that uh, similarly anti gravity shouldn't man, shouldn't do anything. So you get large too, huh? Exactly. I mean, that's that's where my question's going. Or you know, unless you can somehow simulate a large amount of mass without the mass actually being there, which you know, to a normal person, sounds like you know magic. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you if you take anything like foc if you focus light, you all of a sudden can have a lot of energy. The probability of well, with an appropriate power source behind that that focuser, that accumulator. Right, right. It's but like the the energy is key. But per square, if I have a huge lens the size of an Earth, well, let me tell you the story another way. I uh, we all of a sudden were working away at uh, at a laser, pulse laser, and all of a sudden the energy the energy came out just extremely high. Well, I took a standard lens and put it in front of it, and I all of a sudden, rather than just have it go off periodically, there were explosions. I began to explode air, nitrogen separated in a flash of light, and I basically then I put put a cover over the top of it, and the, the cover was propelled out at great velocity. Therefore, I have a patent that says you can have a you can have a jet using uh, burning nitrogen as fuel. Is that okay? Well, that Anyhow. sounds pretty good, right? No, that sounds pretty good. But if so you can do that how much, light, how much you do, if you can do that to light, you can also do it to gravity, right? The gravity lens. And then you can do it through anti-gravity, and you can do it. The other forces all operate on similar principles. And so all of a sudden you come down to the people that have used gravity, such as Cyril and Hamill and Hutchison and Webb, and, and then even before that, the, the mystical people that 
all of a sudden found themselves floating in air. We don't know how they did it, but they were there. Because, see, I do follow the data. If all of a sudden 30 intelligent people have actually verified something, like in case of Hume, then that's data. And then we, we, if we don't know the answer of how it's done, that is where a senior scientist starts to work. If he knows something, he turns it over to an engineer and simply says, turn out the crank again and again and again, produce 100 billion of them. But if you don't know something, that's where you start to work as a senior scientist. And so Hume's work and, and uh, the flying saucer stuff and all the rest of those things, as soon as we don't know, then we start to work. And I have little things kind of trying to verify how they did things uh, by having things float around my lab. Before we float any further. <laughs> okay. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you've entered another dimension you've entered the podcast You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and floating in our presence is senior scientist Boyd Bushman. I want to kind of get brass tacks here. Now, okay. any of the things that you've done 
in the course of the years related to anti-gravity research. Have you ever come into any evidence that the government, for example, has acquired information and or actual artifacts of real UFOs? I took the... Like I say, I follow the data theory be damned. Okay, well, I all of a sudden got um, everything done by Bob Lazar, 100% of it. I mean, all the videos and all the words and all the rest of those things. And then I basically say, okay, is this stuff real or is it not? Do I put it in my circular file or my regular file? And so I uh, took his stuff. I had um, a total of six meetings with people of various specialties and they saw the entire film and then I asked them in their area of specialty if they how what the plausibility was and what that really meant and uh, I could verify that approximately oh someplace between 40 to two-thirds of his stuff was real I mean his stuff his stuff regarding element 115 it's, uh, my atomic physicists, more than one, was rather surprised that he knew about the stability shelf that 115 would uh, would reside in. The application of 115, I don't know if the application was right, but I, I do know that the stability in existence, it, that it could be developed and it would be stable. And since Bob Lazar did his thing, the United States government and England and Russia have uh, have spent oh several billion dollars to go on ahead and develop up to element 118 before when Lazar did his thing when he released his stuff uh, there was only about up to oh 100 and 109 elements and they went on ahead and and produced up to 118 now at the cost of billions of dollars. Well, if Lazar was absolutely out of it, why did they do it? Why do you spend that much money? Nevertheless, uh, and on the security issues, I verify that he was 100% on on the definition of how he's got got his job. I actually got a hold of people that had interviewed for that that job and went through exactly what what that went. You know, I track my data sources precisely, scientifically, absolutely around. His end application, I don't. Uh, I don't quite know, but I know that there's enough there that that uh, we're uh, trying to do some investigations in areas that he suggested, but not in some of the ways that he suggested. See, to me, every time you have a classified area, you have the story, and the story is what you're really doing, and then you have the cover story which sounds plausible that you might be doing that, but it's not. It's to mislead people. Well, I think that about one-third of Pablo's R was a cover story. So I had to break down what was story and what was cover story so that we could move forward and use anything that he was coming out with. But uh, I also, of course, uh, uh, did, did also run across a friend of mine who uh, was uh, told by the pilot that shot down the UFO, where he shot it down at and what time period and the fact that he landed and, and what he saw. And what he saw does match what the Roswell people say. He was, he went out, he went out and in his jet way back then. And um, there was a craft ahead of him 
And uh, he kept talking to base and says, well, what do I do? I, you, you told me where to come with your radar. says, I'm here. And, and uh, the thing started to pull him away from me. And they, they said, well, you have, you have one of our newer weapons going ahead. Uh, what do you think? And he says, well, I, I've been told that if something's not friendly, it's an enemy. I want to take it out. And, they, and so he, said, he called back and says, is it friendly? Do you have friends, any one of us in the region? And I said, nope, we don't. So he took it out and over Roswell and indeed. So all the rest of those things, at least that much of this Roswell story is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, by about, uh, well, about two of the better sources that I know uh, confirm that. Well, now, 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 now here's the thing, Boyd. Then I, I tie that in with, with Bob Lazar. But again, I can, I have to have data. And uh, so to indeed say that uh, something was shot down is fine. And that something was carted away is fine. And uh, that they did strange things over Area 51 is fine. But to me, the real question is, is what technology, if there were aliens, what technology did they leave us? Or what did we learn? And how are we applying it? And according to the Lazar things, we're flying those little things around. His data is is a little bit hokey when it comes to that point, but I suspect that by the time I get through, of course, the, the one item that was that flew my buddy's wife is now uh, is now located over there where uh, is now located over there where we developed the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project over to Los Alamos. So what this is buy? okay. Now, but I gotta I gotta go back here for a minute, uh, Boyd, because <laughs> okay. what we know about Lazar is that he's made up a tremendous amount of his past. So this is this is where I, I'm really going not clear. Know. Say, no, say I mean, that last, say that last sentence again. He's made up a tremendous amount of his past. This is a cover story you're saying. Well, I'm saying I'm saying if he had was in a part in a very classified program, he had to have a cover story. Yeah, but and, he's, and, and, and he's no, part I, of it. Wait. Part of it could be the story, and part of it could be this cover story. And I'm so really he, saying. He, and he so what I had to do is I had to dissect what was real and what was crap. All right. So he claimed he went to MIT. We know that's crap. Well, no. Well, I. They all it is is you can't verify whether it did or didn't. I went to with my security people, and I said, "Can no way? Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! One second, boy. And that is, how could you hide whether or not you went to MIT? If you went to MIT, there would be a record of your attendance, wouldn't there? No, no, no. I went. I went to my security people. Notice I had. I had six meetings. One of my meetings was with security people, government security people. I'm not talking about a guard with a badge. I'm talking about government security people that are associated with top secret stuff. And I said, can you make a person's record disappear? And he, they, they all looked at me and said, and worse. How do you well, like that? Well, but, That's, you know, but that the thing is, Boyd, I'm not saying they did. I'm saying that they could. So they're going to go to the yearbooks that came out the year that someone's in school. They're I have, go had, to, I I have, have had records of mine that have been purified, where things have been totally purged, literally. I yeah, mean, but, but I, boy, I, 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 
Right. If you have a centralized record, but if you have yearbooks that have gone out to 2,000 people, they're going to go dig up every yearbook in the hands of every private individual and erase someone's image from those yearbooks? That's outrageous. Well, well, you, well you do notice that the person that interviewed him did identify that he was in the yearbook, but, he, but his, his record of graduation was nowhere to be found. Okay, so you're saying he's in the yearbook, but I don't have access to the yearbook. You can get, he's in the yearbook, but you do not have his record of graduation. Is that what we're... That's right. That's the separation. The college records are, are purged. That's what the person that interviewed Lazar found. I mean, in each case, he found evidence that he was indeed... had You know, he had some picture taken or some friends or some something associated with every place he said he had been. And when he actually checked the, the official organization, you know, there was no record. Okay, well, let me ask that's you a question what, here. Which, that's, what my, yeah. that's what my friends in security can do. All right, understood. But now, why would you sanitize this man's record as attending MIT? Why would you do that? What is the motivation to hide a person's educational record? Well, when I bottom line Lazar, I basically say, if I were the United States government or any government, and I all of a sudden had a project that was very significant. And I all of a sudden, I all of a sudden uh, was getting nowhere at all. I would really like to have some minds that could help me come in and join with me. And so, um, why don't we have one of our guys pretend to break code and go out and say a lot of things, and and the people that basically call and say that the particular items that are the, that are the cover story and not the story, when they call back and say that's a batch of bunk, we, we can immediately go over and uh, hire them into our program. Not only that, but stronger than that. Uh, they will have enough intelligence to basically come in and help us. And it's a nice, it's a nice mousetrap. I, I know any of my friends have ever called that area making any comment regarding the, the Lazar work. Not at all. It's because we actually think we might get trapped for the, the rest of our f professional careers. Uh, just as an aside, um, I'm looking online and it's stated that the yearbooks from both the California Institute of Technology and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, neither of them has identity photos or any other references to Bob Lazar. So from what I'm seeing, again, just cursory look right now online, indeed, th there are no yearbooks with pictures to him or references to him. Mm -hmm. I would think that, and, and also, from what I know, Bob Lazar has never been able to produce a diploma from these institutions. And again, boy, the point is, when, you know, you, you're listening to someone's testimony, whether or not they're putting out disinformation or telling the truth, it's about looking at credibility, like this guy Richard Doty, who, to me, I mean, th this guy is another guy who's just out there spreading nonsense, almost as a distraction. Now, in the case of Doty, I, I'm guessing that this guy's a distraction to keep people going on false paths, to move them away from any actual understanding of what's really going on. Um, now, I mean, in many well, ways, that, that is that, that is done as well, and in fact, that's that's part of a program as well. So it's it's multi-phase, and it's it's fine. It's the it's the universe that I know and love, and um, everybody. Well, like I said, they've got to be successful, and uh, so they'll develop systems and programs and spend a lot of money arriving at uh, what they want to.
And if they can do it by deception, up in uh, up in Washington, there's a nice little building. Uh, you walk through the front door, and you, at least I'm told by some very very strong friends of mine, you walk into to the uh, front door, and it looks like a normal door. And to walk into the interior door, there's a there's a, an expression across the top that says, "Befriend and betray." Befriend and betray. Exactly. In other words, there is a section of our government that has that as their objective in life. So basically, so, it create distractions. Right. So you, you can understand. That's the reason that I give uh, Lazar only 40 to, 40 to two-thirds, because I can verify the rest of it should be thrown away. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't arrive at data by any of the other directions. So, but we're proceeding on potential, on potential payoff in an area or two of his. But Hutchins just sent me an email uh, out of Canada, and uh, he's trying to reproduce his work. And uh, bless his heart, he's, he's doing okay. And then my local friend is kind of involved with secur- security, you know, and therefore that that I've told you is real, but that was in a time period when he didn't have to deal with a lot of interesting people. At any rate, how are you guys doing? <laughs> how, is your, how is the show going? <laughs> oh, so far, this is going interesting. This is pretty interesting. So tell me something, Boyd. How do you get Element 115 to exist for more than a few seconds at a time? And how do you gather 15 pounds of it and remove it from Area 51? And the other question I'm going to mention is we can start the answer here and then we'll break for the hourly break and then pick it up on the other half of the hour. So part one of your answer, Boyd, you know, this is, this okay. is, this is, of course, show business. You have to, of course, have this okay. separation, have the, the mystical aspect. No, 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 no. We, we understand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you wish to know why do you think it would stay around? That's going to be relatively simple. And the second of it is if you needed uh, several pounds of it, how would you get it? Well, Lazar claims to have removed 15 pounds from Area 51, as I understand. No, I, I understand. Yeah, I, I, and the, again, I don't. My technology doesn't even think that you need a 115 to get there. But that's here. That's neither here nor there, because the government has spent billions arriving at not 115 but 118. And 118 and ion of 118 is very stable. And 115 is by stable. I mean, you should be able to find the darn thing in the dirt. Okay. Hey, the stable elements just kind of stay around forever, like gold. And so so if it's a stable element, it's, you should be able to dig the darn stuff up, refine it out, and pull it, and pull out as much as you want, mm. if it's stable. Okay, I'll tell you what, let's That's pursue part that. two of this answer on the other part of the Paracast. We're talking to Boyd Bushman, senior scientist on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We return momentarily. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story. 
story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're back with senior scientist Boyd Bushman. We're talking about various scientific discoveries, new elements, anti-gravity, etc. We were talking about this element 115. Now, let's kind of go back a little bit. What is there about element 115 that we need to know about? What is it specifically? What is it capable of doing or interacting or whatever? Well, as I said before, I believe in following data, the data... If I take a chemical table and I put it above, you know, on the wall, and uh, then I all of a sudden put on each of the elements, how long will it last before it decays, before it goes away? I, when I go toward the bigger elements heading down the chemical table, I will all of a sudden find out there's a magical thing called a plateau, you know, like a like a mesa out there in in. Uh, the Navajo Indian land, where there's yeah, all on the of a sudden, top of plateau. Yeah, where there's all of a sudden an extended plateau or an extended mesa that extends in the chemical elements down toward the larger elements. And and if you simply look at where it has been, it was projected that as soon as you got to element 114 through 18, that it would be in a stable plateau. In other words, it, it would be an element that wouldn't last. Other elements will last a microsecond beyond to the right and to the left of that. But um, over the last, since Bob Lazar did his thing, Russia, United States, and Europe, have basically been using the colliders, and they've, they've come through and have indeed built out to element 118. And they have verified where the stable plateau is. And uh, one of the ions of 115 is out there, and 118 looks a little bit better. Okay, but and, what do we do with this element? And, the, and then your friends and mine sure. are trying to take the stuff that they have now and answer your next question. And it may be about 25 years from now that they will let us know what they found out. Okay, so we don't know now what we can do with this element 115. And and all the claims of Lazar are just exactly that. As far as I'm concerned, there's no data that says that any one of those elements can do what he said 115 would do. In other words, like I said, there's one-third of Lazar's stuff which cannot fall into the data class. Okay, let me just ask you quickly, what does he say, for those who aren't acquainted with all of Lazar's stuff, what does he say these elements can do? 
Well, he basically says that the elements you the element can be placed in a in a nice little cone and the top of a cone, and it will aim out a beam. And uh, if you get one up to three beams aimed toward a mountaintop, it will use it will bend space time, and all of a sudden your spacecraft that you're in will be at the mountaintop instantaneously, without any acceleration, without anything. That's uh, the Lazar claim. Now, he has a little bit of Einstein in there, but he, uh, to tie it in with element 115, I don't, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that we will know, and I don't know that they will know until they conduct a great deal of experiments. And I don't know that they're, they'd be interested in going that way because the current people that I know uh, look like to me that they're headed toward with energy beams, it looks like to me that they're headed toward uh, higher explosives and they're headed up toward modifying time and uh, rather than heading toward doing that. And so modifying they, time, did you say? Yeah, sure. Can you but qualify that? Well, they, but they, they tried to do it and they didn't. Nothing happened that was significant. And uh, nevertheless, what well, by Einstein's theory of relativity says that indeed there could be a potential time machine, you know. So well, uh, I guess there's there's a difference between bending space time and mm -hmm. traveling in time. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. Well, you just need a black hole. Well, you, you need come a out, come out where you want. Well, assuming that your your whatever the enclosure you're entering that black hole with could withstand yeah. the insane. But again, that's the reason that I say follow the data theory. Be damned. The the theory is there. And it, it absolutely means nothing until you can do it once. Right, then, sure. it, then it becomes significant. Then it becomes data. And not only that, the theory becomes law. And, and everything congeals very well. But in actuality, if I simply follow the theory, I have 100,000 million people that are letting their mouths talk. And if I wanted to say each, each sentence of theirs was a theory, I, we would get nowhere. Okay. And, there, and therefore, and therefore, there was a Lazar that was, that was allowed to talk. And uh, let's pull. And I, for, think, for the... I think allowed to talk is a key word. And he said to me some things that were meaningful, and other things that were highly suspect. Okay. Let's pull Lazar out of the equation. Thank let's you. go. Let's go to the meta question of: Is there anything that you've seen, or is there anyone you've spoken to? that would indicate that there are captured non-human technologies that are serving as the basis for research into future human technologies. Well, I'd rather prefer my friends that are pushing forward our stuff. They realize that we actually, there have been things that have been manufactured that, that look precisely like a circular UFO. And um, my friend Bob Woodmer uh, was assigned to do that, and, uh, and the guys took his complete his complete design away. And and um, later on, according to data that I that I received, just oh, what was it? Three. And I have a, I have an email that came in to me on uh, seven eighteen oh six by uh, Michael Schratt, and he has the. Uh, the design time and the drawing of uh, one, two, three, four things that are circular is mad and um, and has the U.S. Uh, Air Force number on them and, and uh, where they were located and what they did, all those good things. There's, a, there's enough data that I think that that's uh, real. 
are, are more plausible than the, than the other. But it is not saying that the other is not plausible. A real question that was done by uh, Carl Sagan basically said that we're rather naive if we think that intelligence only exists only exists here. And the question is, is when intelligence becomes intelligence. What can it do and what will it do? It's rather interesting. To the, I like what O'Leary said when he, he basically said the only thing that he knows, the reason he thought that the UFOs were, were uh, from other people is because if somebody on Earth did it, they'd jump up down and claim credit and, and sell it for money. And uh, it says that isn't happening with, with about, oh, about three quarters of the of the things we're seeing. So, but whatever they, whatever it is, it seems to be that that it's rather benign. I realize what other people have said, but the data there goes rather thin. I mean, in actuality, we're we're uh, in a pretty friendly environment. It looks like to me. Well, actually, we, we we don't really know that. Actually, and 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 further, based on discussions we've had on the Paracast, there is no concrete evidence to prove to sort of point towards. Uh, the notion that whatever these things are, that they are coming from other specific planets. Um, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that maybe we're looking at something more complex than that. And, and that brings me to another question, mm -hmm. which is, all right, so you can create, let's say, for example, you can create technology that essentially l allows you to have an anti-gravity engine of some sort. All right. Does that anti-gravity engine buy you the ability to break through well, two things, two part, two part question. Does an anti-gravity technology give you enough to be able to move faster than light? A. Part B, if you move faster than light, how do you, A, maintain the integrity of whatever the structure is? And B, do you in fact at that point break through the idea of what our dimensional constraints are? Well, I think you have to go back to the very beginning. I almost feel like I'm, you know, the sound of music. You have to, right. you know, do re me and all the rest of those things. Sure, sure. If you really take a look at what Einstein said, he basically said that uh, if I tend to use photons to communicate with, in other words, I see light and I use lights to communicate with, he, he basically said that if I had a spacecraft that started moving toward the speed of light. Speed of light, right? Uh, yeah, the speed of light. That, and I tried to communicate using a laser back, you know, with digitized data bits. Right. Uh, that that they basically would not be able to get back to me, and therefore, effectively, to the person that was trying to receive the message, he would say I was gone or not there. And therefore, it says light cannot travel faster than the velocity of light. But if I take Newton, if I am traveling at the velocity of light, he basically says to me, it doesn't look like I'm traveling at all. If I have the velocity C, okay? And if I have an accelerator, can I travel 10 miles an hour faster? And the answer is yes. And therefore, there exists a total capacity to, according to the best theory, Available, we and that remember, I don't follow theory. And needless to say, I just said you can't get the data only because if you try to use photons to get the data, then it's uh, a little bit difficult. But however, as long as we're there, we might as well go to the other one, and that is if Einstein were blind, if Einstein were blind, he being intelligent would still come up with an equation and he would say 
that nothing can travel faster than the sound of the speed of sound. And he would have an equation that basically would have the square root of you know, whatever velocity and, and velocity of sound would be on the bottom. And he would say at the velocity of sound, there will be a huge energy release, like the atomic bomb, except it'll be a boom. Well, it is our sonic boom. And that the velocity of sound, and it may well be at the velocity of light, but we're just gathering, we're just gathering photons like we gather, like we gather nitrogen can't travel faster than the velocity of tennis sound, so it starts stacking up at the edge of our wings like liquid, and then it comes loose as it rolls around, and that's what our sonic boom is. Well, okay, so we have a sonic boom, which is a little bomb. In fact, we have an ability to use sonic boom in order to destroy a, destroy a building by simply having a jet fly a spiral around, a closing in spiral, so that the sonic boom from one direction comes in a little bit later than the next one, later than the next one, and all of the sonic booms hit the four walls at the same time. And the command center just simply implodes. It's like a matter. It's like a matter dissonance, is what you're describing. <laughs> well, right. well, okay. okay, but at any rate, now if we have if we have a sonic level and we have a light level, uh, the Russians conducted a little experiment, kind of like on the thought or intuition level or something like that. They uh, basically gave uh, a Russian submarine commander a batch of rabbits. I mean, a box of rabbits, new, newly born rabbits. And they gave the Russian commander uh, an envelope. And they basically sent him to the other side of the world, other side of the earth, under the ocean. Anyhow, he was on the other side of the world. And at this particular longitude and latitude, he was to open the envelope and carry out the, carry out the process. When he opened the envelope, they had the mother rabbit already tied into where they had their, their brain waves and, and, and respiration and pulse and everything else. And at that one time, the commander opened up the envelope and it said to kill the little rabbits. He did so. The mother rabbit picked that up at the exact second of accomplishment. So maybe there is some other thing that's a little bit beyond beyond light, and we have another little extension to things that thoughts may travel a little bit different than light. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support 
this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have senior scientist Boyd Bushman, and we're talking, I guess, about theories of anti-gravity. Now... I want to kind of approach this in different ways. First of all, I guess our listeners who want to know, have you ever seen a UFO yourself? Negative. Okay. In fact, I've chosen not to. <laughs> well, I, everything that I, when I observe something, I usually have paralysis of analysis until I finally identify what it is. You know, I've seen comets and I've seen this and the other satellites and all the rest of those things. But because the real question on data is, is do you have credible data sources? In other words, do you have people without vested interests? Do you have people that are et cetera and so forth? And just like the one I received from Canada, you know, he's a farmer and uh, he uh, he shipped his stuff across. They took four of my large bales of hay because I prefer this. He didn't, didn't do that. Interesting, huh? But I received that from, if anyone makes anything out of it or anyone that's not plausible or reputable, I just simply say it's not phase two data. I prefer phase one data, but uh, but, uh, phase two data has to be used if you really want to go forward. And uh, we've done that. And then we develop develop a copy ourselves and and do the experiment ourselves. But... um, Flight and anti-gravity has been, the the concept of flight, I should say, has been around in various forms and various ways. The god of uh, Cyrus and Darius was called Dehura Mazdi, and what it was is a man in a bubble, and the thing that had kind of like I saw it above above Darius's uh, tomb in, in Iran, out in, in Shiraz. And um, nevertheless, and uh, there were... Not only that, but my flying coil, when it lifts up, I did that by reading the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, then I went on to the, uh, to the, there one, is one that precedes that written in Sanskrit, and I went through and, and I asked the guy what this thing was that was carrying 200 soldiers to the city in the clouds, and um, he basically said, well, it looked like a lotus blossom, and I said, well, no, because it has to be a conductor. And he said, yeah, it's supposed to glow brilliantly in the light. And so I said, fine, I need to make a conductor that looks like a lotus blossom and sits low. And so when I do anything with it, it immediately starts flying. So I built one, and it flew. I read uh, 3,000 words a minute. So, uh, you know, they say, read the good book. So I, that takes 45 minutes. And then I read the Gita and the Tao and all the 27 others, put them on one shelf. And I say, whenever you guys make up your mind on anything, let me know. And uh, I, they kind of stay quiet, very frankly. Looking at this whole thing here, yeah, you have done experimentation in the lab. Things are flying, floating, whatever. Okay? Mm-hmm. People are floating. Now, is there a way right now to infuse this technology into some practical aircraft so that we could see what's going on here and how it might work? Well, my problem is, is, is the problem of energy. The Department of Defense would much prefer a weapon. Uh, historically, the uh, 
they found a, a rock that that had a you know when they when they cracked it open it had a sharp edge and so they they basically came down ultimately and made a spear and a sword out of it so as soon as i start getting something that's a nice useful thing for humanity those that actually control a box simply say hey can i destroy humans with it and if i if it is an energy source the answer has always been yes if i really so i do expect that the first applications will turn out to be weapons of course and then after a while, we'll turn around and, and share some back so that things can be done. As far as the military are concerned, unless you can transport, you know, beyond 800 guys, why start the prototype? And to have one guy suspended or do something is kind of irrelevant. But to have one guy with, no, you know, 10, 15, 20 bombs, that's significant from their point of view. Fear has always been, uh, unfortunately, energy has always created a has always created a a, a new weapon development. It has always uh, it has always been that way. And uh, then eventually, your your car is nothing more than four or eight cannons. Uh, you take cannons, and uh, you all of a sudden have the ball. And you take it around and tie it into a crankshaft, and all of a sudden that's what your car is. Had there not been a cannon, you would not have, have, had, have had a car. It's just That was just a regular step development directly from weaponry. So I suspect that the first applications that you'll find won't be used for. To make, to make what you want to say is life better, it wants to basically make sure that any of our enemies will have, have to pay a higher price. Like I said, over in in uh, over in Vietnam, we're only losing two to three thousand men a war. It was about two thousand men a month in Korea, and uh, but our enemy is still two thousand men a month. We were trying to work on frontal lobotomy, you know, basically change the opinion of things. And so my birds are going out with well. Death and destruction tied to the wing. Well, okay, but with anti-gravity, which looks to me like a propulsion system, how do you well, real, how do you make real, that into a weapon? Well, if I have a beam, if I have a beam, sure. And if I focus it, can we, can I get it to explode? Well, that's the way all the rest of it has been, and and so the probability of having other military applications will come before we go to the, before we go to that or. They are already doing that. The question is, is, did they get, has anyone gotten enough to leave the earth? I have a videotape that shows something that uh, was actually came toward us and had a, had a, a, looked like a laser fire at it and it took a right hand turn and went on, on ahead way away from us. My video libraries are extensive. And my my data sets are are, are extensive, and, and we verified that it wasn't hooked up anyway, and that that data set is around. The real question is: is has anyone been able to to leave us? Because eventually we're going to have to, you know, the world will go, the the sun will convert over to helium, and it will expand to the size of Mercury's orbit, and uh, so we we need to prepare for that next that next process of transport. Okay. But it won't be to be around here, and so I, I, NASA, said, "Hey, Boyd, we're going toward Mars," and I said, "No, one, go repair the Hubble telescope. It's contributed more to us than anything else. Allow it to stay in orbit another 10, 12 years. Two, go to the south pole of the moon 
at the south pole of the moon there's a crater that never has seen a, a beam of light from the sun and there's a huge ice lake there go to there and you can use the hydrogen and oxygen to breathe the hydrogen for fuel you can study things out from there if you wish and uh, then three there are ways of taming venus so that there could potentially be a lower temperature and a more inhabitable thing uh, head toward that and then head toward leaving head toward the stars we've got to and the question is, is when i don't think that uh that the that's a warming thing that's just a little hiccup in the history of time if my data stretch, stretches go back to the glaciers and on through and we haven't even started to get what we can get in warmth without any problem at all so in spite of the fact that that uh, the guy received a, a nobel prize the contribution was very little but of course uh you realize that in 2039 we are going to an asteroid about the size of the Rose Bowl that comes and collides with the Earth on April the 9th. Whoa, 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 stop, stop. Oh, no, wait a minute. Now, now, this is real, but we don't know that it's going to collide yet. We've got yeah. the first pass. The question is, is, what is the accuracy of uh, an ephemeris? How accurate are my astronomy guides? My astronomy people are precise. The rest of the guys are hokey. But my astronomy guys are just great. And you're saying it's going to happen. Let me just tell our listeners well, no, no, before no, the no, asteroid no, comes my, down. My, my recommendation sure. to was it is going to come back by on 2029 first. And it will be between the moon and the earth that time. We, can, we have an opportunity to basically veer its orbit at that time so that it doesn't come and strike us as of 2039. But we even have it named, and the Japanese went out and photographed it. I have a photograph of it on above my desk, and then it's named, and its trajectory is it's, is there. But again, all we have to do is get busy and apply our minds, and they've they've already asked me which technique I prefer out of five. And uh, I I think to use a law of gravity and and just simply get something that kind of travels a little bit ahead of it or behind it, it basically will try to come toward it, the craft, and and it will either slow down or speed up. I prefer it to slow down and and to go between us and Venus. Uh, At any rate, so, but anyhow, those are techniques and methods that that can be achieved. and, And we will see that threat first before the other ones. But again, if we use our intelligence and come on through, and yeah, I agree. I agree with you. If we decide to apply, if there were to be an imminent threat that was not solvable, then we should head toward applying the, our superior technologies toward heading up and up and beyond. But if there is no threat, everything is fine. I like the place. Uh, Earth's been around for a long, a long time. But we're actually composed of star stuff. Uh, the the uh, the comets and everything else has uh, they have uh, they have molecular bond material uh, already there. It isn't just rocks and minerals. It's literally bonded, uh, ready to to bond and build DNA. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have another little while to spend with Boyd Bushman, senior scientist, talking about anti-gravity, a possible threat to this planet coming later this century. Of course, I'll be rather old then. Maybe I won't care, but if it happens. But, you know, the thing that concerns me, listening to all this. You'll have grandkids. You're a good guy. Are you married? Yes, I am. Okay. Think, think grandkids. I'll communicate with my son after the show is over. But, well done. Okay, but let's just look at this in a practical sense now. You've been telling us about supposedly secret technology. Now, wouldn't the government want to call you up say, Boyd, you know, listen, this isn't cool. You really shouldn't be talking about this on national and worldwide broadcasts. You know, why are you getting into this stuff? Well, I know my debriefing statements, what I signed and what I didn't sign. And everything you've received, I can say. Isn't that nice? In other words, when you actually go out and talk secret clearance stuff, they they basically carry out exactly what areas you must preserve for the rest of your life and tell and tell no one. And then they free you to the rest of the world. And being a scientist, I'm busy. And I haven't stopped in a minute. And, and we're, we're putting things together as I stand. And again, I was supposed to be in, oh, a year ago, I was, a year and a half ago, I was supposed to be in Washington, D.C., giving a presentation to, to about oh, 150 scientists there. And my doctor told me that I needed to get checked into the hospital. So I lost that opportunity. But uh, many of them have communicated with me because of the material I was going to give. And, uh, and we're moving forward. And uh, I have a friend, I have several friends that are putting together companies. And uh, others are, in, are working on technologies. And it's all growing. But I don't. I do stay true to my debriefing statement. That that I can not say, I do not say. And that's all right. Uh, However, the probability that they have my phone bugged is almost, no, 80%. And I don't mind that. I like the guys and, and uh, anything I can pick it up that pick up that might help them. I think it'd be great. So, Boyd, I want to make sure that we're clear on this. Uh, the asteroid you're talking about, which I think had it was what was called 2000 MN4. Yeah. This is right. That's this is the one that that they thought would strike in 2029. It looks now yeah. like it's not going to strike in 2029, but that it will pass through a gravitational keyhole that. Will actually it is actually it's 2036 when it does strike. Well, 
Now, I'm looking at uh, a couple of NASA pages here, and uh, apparently uh, prevailing theory that's being put out to the public, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure we're all clear on this, is that the impact possibility for April 13th, 2036, um, is supposedly 1 in 45,000. But you're saying that your guys, and I want to qualify, who do you mean by your guys? Oh, no, the, astronomer, the astronomical methods. In other words, having several sightings of a comet. In other words, Haley, Haley was able to predict that Haley's comet would be back exactly 76 years from the time he saw it. Haley had died, but his comet came back exactly where he said. And they're using the same methods. It's the now, same group of people. But this is a group of people then that has nothing to do with the official statement. You're saying that these guys are saying that it's what percentage of probability that thing's gonna, this thing is going to hit in, two, in 2036? Well, I like, I like the fact, like Einstein said, God doesn't play with dice. If you can actually get around firm mathematics, you don't have to play the nice dice game. Right. In other words, in order for it to vary, for, vary from the orbit, it would actually have to run into things that would vary it. Well, we know where it's going to travel. And there ain't nothing there. How do you like that? Well, so then your guys say it's a hundred percent probability this thing is going to impact the Earth in 2036. Yeah, unless we do something about it. But the probability we'll do something about it will totally depend on what we think. What do we think about on uh, 2029 when it comes past? Right? I think we'll prepare by then, and we'll take care of it. It's it's okay. It's good that, you see, we just barely got the astronomical people. We just barely got the astronomical people to, to uh, develop uh, astronomy that would find planetoids and, uh, and work on the asteroids. And uh, we've always known that there were 18 planetoids. And um, we always knew the asteroid belt. Of course, we're shipping things over the asteroid belt almost as we speak. But uh, the, the uh, small planetoid... Had we not started in about, well, I want to say, 78, uh, we sent Dr. Wolf, as I recall, down to Arizona to uh, set up a system to start detecting them and logging them in and getting their trajectories and orbits and all the rest of those things. We would have never detected this thing. And even those nine things that came and collided into Jupiter, we didn't really detect them until they came whizzing past. We didn't. Even as good as our system is, we didn't pick those up, and so we're improving, and uh, and therefore it, it's it's good, and uh, but eventually, you know, we we've always known, if you go into probabilities, the probability that we will have a significant something coming, and give us about a 200 megaton hit, is probable, very at a very high rate, but but again, I. Don't ever really get excited until I get my astronomers busy. Astronomers don't deal in probabilities. They go down to their to very very fine math. And uh, old you know old science is still around. It still comes right on through. We don't uh, talk about longevity of existence to sell insurance. We uh, we're dealing with science and uh, and and all of those good things. But on, on your subject of, uh, I don't know, I, levitation, I, I, I did my did my four tests, and those came through, and then I got together with uh, with Webb, and he 
did his test that I told you about. And, uh, of course, your friend, your friend, uh, uh, John Hutchison, he had a levitated bowling ball and, and, uh, quite a few other things photographed very well in Japan by multiple cameras. And a character by the name of Hamill up in Canada had his system in England, and Cyril had his stuff. But, um, if I, if I go back and, you know, if I go back, if I go down to, to, uh, to South America, I have, I have blocks which are 150 pounds and they have been moved and placed. And none of the ways we say that they might be moved is they're all stupid because they were moved and they were placed and they were lifted and placed. I'm talking about 150 pounds or 150 tons? 150 tons. Okay. In fact, there's one of them that has that has 12 sides to it. It's a rock, a large, large 150-ton rock that has that has a tolerance on it. Many of the other ones are there. I don't know. It's more than it's approaching 100, 100 to 150 tons. Uh, it has 12 sides, and it's fit into a wall such that its mating components match. It precisely to all 12 sides. The rocks around it match exactly, and it has a tolerance such that you can't take a knife blade and slide into the crack. Where is this work. stone located? Where is this located? In Peru. It's great. Not only that, there's an entire wall that is uh, the majority of a mile long, and every stone, stone is like that, and, you, and they weigh like that. And when there's an earthquake, that thing doesn't move at all. It just kind of stays there. And uh, they've even had Catholic churches built on top of them, and the church shakes apart and uh, comes down and crashes down, and the wall's still there. Well, we've, uh, we've on, on the Paracast board, we've talked about the idea that there is a, a history of technology on this planet that is, for the most part, unknown to us. Um, well, what, I hope so. Well, what you're saying, basically, the idea is that ancient civilizations had technologies that you guys are just figuring out. That's correct. Is that correct? Precisely. And then from uh, one of the one of the first, uh, I, I don't consider the the Egyptian pyramids to be much of a challenge. I've stood on those and can come on through. But uh, the ones down in the the ones in uh, in Peru, the, both the uh, the drawings and the walls themselves are uh, still a challenge to us. Well, you know, let's go let's go to the Great Pyramid for a moment, only because we yeah. talked about that on a show two weeks ago with a researcher named Dennis Ballfacer, yeah. an engineer, retired engineer. And okay, the Great Pyramid. You saying the specific Great Pyramid of Giza? No, well, the Great big deal. Pyramid of Giza. The, the blocks are there, but they aren't fit together anywhere like the Peruvian blocks. The Peruvian blocks are so precise, you can't slide a knife blade between them. The, the ones in the Great Pyramid of Giza are just blocks, and however they chisel them, they chisel them, and they don't fit flat against each other. I mean, it's just, it's really a, a, I consider a sloppy job. If I really wanted to get smooth and, and make a good fit, I would have done it a lot better than that. But yeah, humans could almost build the thing at Giza. But, uh, almost yeah. build. Well, they, <laughs> well, no, no, actually humans could do it. Humans could build that darn thing. But, uh, the one down in Peru, Humans, I'm talking about humans with, with technology they had then. We, the ones down in Peru, 
are still a stretch for us now. I mean, literally, it's, it's, it's quite the shaping of everything, the placing of everything. They even had a they even have had a god that was cut out of the mountainside, transported on rough terrain, and there was to be a um, a base for it where it's going to stand, and they just didn't complete the trip. Well, the darn thing not only was cut out, but the backside was shaped as well, and you'd have to have a 90 degree tool go around to shape the backside. And uh, we can't do we can't do what they did. Hmm. I mean, right now we can't. I cannot do what they did. Okay. Well, then. But, but Giza, on sure. the other hand, is the mathematicians get happy. But but of course, I believe that mathematicians exist on top of Mount uh, Mount Olympus, and they don't like anything to be. They don't like dust to settle on their mathematics. And in fact, there was one, and uh, Maxwell uh, was a mathematician. And he had a friend that was a physicist, and kind of they, they, they were going to go to lunch, so they had several times. And so he went over, and, they, and they, there was an argument with about six physicists. And after a while, he, he went over to Blackboard and said, listen, guys, if what it is, if what, what you said is this, I'm stretching the truth a bit, but it's good. And nevertheless, he says that it is, then it's, it's just these six equations, and that's what light is. And, he, and they looked at it and says, you're right. And he received a Nobel Prize, and then he went back to his fellow mathematicians, and, and the fellow mathematician says, what happened? And he says, I don't know. They gave me this thing, and they gave me money, and uh, et and so forth. He says, well, what did you do? He says, I developed six equations. He says, can we see the equations? He says, yeah, here they are. And they said, well, what do you mean? There's no advanced differential equations. There's no complex conjugates. There's no contribution to mathematics at all. And then he says, yeah, those guys are strange. <laughs> okay, hey, before we get too strange and get too, too out of shape... For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. 
My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and your good David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Boyd Bushman, a senior scientist, and we're talking about anti-gravity, the frontiers of science, maybe an asteroid as a threat like the movie Armageddon later this century. And I want to look at something. All right. So maybe we could have built the Great Pyramid without extra human help. So that raises the ultimate question here. The stuff in South America, was that based on a technology that we knew years, centuries, thousands of years ago and lost sight of, or some external influence involved? I would like to go to that university. I would like to be taught by that professor. Uh, Whatever they did, I would like to take that course. I mean, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's it's that good. And again, I have three degrees sideways, and uh, and I do I do strange things. But but again, you're you're uh, you you do know about uh, that nice little thing over in Florida. That uh, oh, anyhow, we had a European come and build a build a castle and uh, coral castle. Yes, right. He said he used the same techniques as they used in Peru. I've gone down and photographed that, and he was only about 120 pounds, and and he was accomplishing things that weren't quite possible. But not, you know, he he wasn't nearly as good as the Peruvian guys. But that's okay. We we like I say, we don't really start to work until we don't know something. Just as soon as we don't know anything, that's where that's where senior scientists start applying your mind and then we develop things that have to have new words invented to describe what they did it just is that way like i say infrared really was thermography and temperature sensing and all the rest of those things but um, we did agree with Herschel and uh, used his term for what he saw pepper doing nevertheless it was interesting he he had a spectrum you know he just had the the sun going through a prism and he saw and he had the messy table and uh he saw the underneath red uh the pepper dried out and uh so he said there's something there and it's inferior to red well everybody else invented other words and we finally went back to, to his infrared, inferior to red, in order to develop our infrared missiles and our infrared satellites and our infrared sites for the F-16 and our infrared sites for the M-1 tank and our infrared sites for, well, they're appearing in just growing in like mushrooms, which is, which is great. A little costly, but they work. And it's just, it's just fine. But nevertheless, since you have your larger audience, which is out there, you have, uh, you realize that there were a group of people that, that levitated themselves, since we're talking about anti-gravity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and since I follow the data, theory be them, as data, I have to say that D.D. Hume did indeed, in the presence of 33 people, head directly up and, and was able to touch the ceiling. 
gun then. He when was when did to, this happen? When did this happen, Boyd? Oh, way back. He also, Hume also. What's way back? When did this happen? What year? Oh, heavens. Just a second. I'll get down. I'm just curious. I want to try to establish a timeline. No, no, I understand. I always, I, in my, in my uh, den, I have, uh, have walls. Of books, of course, and, uh, and there's pho- there's photographic evidence. Is this uh, at a time when there could be photographs? Hume, let's see, Hume, uh, uh, 1886 in right. Paris. So uh, presumably no photographic evidence. Well, it, it, uh, so you follow the best data you have. Uh, he did it time and time and time again. You know, everybody get around the king and. And uh, then the king would say, "Okay, do your thing," and he Gerald, and then and finally they'd go to human. And uh, and it was Napoleon the Third that he was associated with. But he also uh, went a, uh, went out a window in a three-story building and went around outside and came in another window, going out levitated. Interesting, huh? So Hume did that, and then of course there was a. A character down in uh, down in Mara Valley, down in Brazil, accomplished the same. The Teresa Avila uh, achieved the same. Uh, and these are all have to be data has to be uh, substantiated with reliable people that have no vested interest, and there has to be a great number of them if you have to go back to data number two. And Joseph of Capricornia also did. Uh, uh, achieved a very similar feat. And all the rest of those things, we don't... Uh, but again, I, I don't know how to uh, tie it into my energy beams. And then, of course, uh, Rex's wife. But uh, that I was able to verify quite well. But mm-hmm. uh, So uh, they, I don't know where they got their beam from. I know where we got our beam from. But at any rate... Was, was well, how did they claim? How did they claim to be able to do this? Oh, I don't know. Hume kind of said the angels of God were lifting him up, or something. The spirits of God were lifting him up, something. And uh, very frankly, the uh, the uh, Teresa uh, was embarrassed every time it happened. I mean, all of a sudden she'd start floating up in front of the, you know, the front of the front of the church, and, and she'd just blush and, and hmm. nevertheless she didn't want it to happen. Nevertheless, it's just like, just like Webb's wife says, I'd prefer to walk anyhow. And, uh, but the data, again, the documentation of, of actual, actually having it happen is kind of passes what I call my data set two. Okay. I prefer, I prefer one. All right. Prefer one is when I get my hands on it and I do it myself. In fact, that's the UFO stuff. I'm trying to build things. That will indeed do what I see. Okay, people boy, boy we yeah. have just a moment left, and I wanted to kind of get to the wrap-up point here. Okay. Just a fast question: If someone wants to I check out your writing, calling me anyway. Sure, by the way. we're happy to have you on. If someone has a question, comment further, and wants to inquire of what you're doing further, what do they do to contact you? Uh, the email is the only way I'll accept anything. Okay, Be- because if it isn't significant, I can delete it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well you, well, you understand. Sure. But I usually, I usually come back and say, uh, "How old are you, and what do you do for a living?" Do you want to give your email address out, or what? Yeah, yeah. My email is is my name, Boyd Bushman, B O I D B U S H M A N. At okay, boy, we've hit the wall here in terms of time. I want to thank you so yep. much for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you well, very much. And, and Gene, it's been delightful. Thanks. See you later. Right, bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Bye.
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand science fiction tradition. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You know, I was very, very young, and some people think that was several hundred years ago. I remember a ride called the Roundup. Do you remember that? No. It's a gigantic wheel, and you stand up in this wheel, and you're held in place by this metallic, not like a seatbelt, metallic bar. And then it starts spinning around, and as it spins, it starts turning until it's vertical at 90 degree uh, angle. I do remember this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. All right. Now, when you get off this ride, you're apt to feel a little bit dizzy. Dizzy, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Now, in as we were getting to the tail end of that interview with Boyd Bushman, I remembered the Roundup. <laughs> Ah, indeed. So did you feel that sense of fear and anticipation for when the ride would be over? (laughs) Well, I think the ride was already over. Yeah. Because I was feeling the most intense sensations of dizziness trying to figure out what this guy said. And I remembered also that famous vaudeville comedian Al Kelly, who used to do double talk on TV shows in the 50s and 60s. You'd bring him on, and he would be someone who would portray a doctor because he was kind of a distinguished-looking, short yeah. kind of gentleman, and he looked a little bit a little bit rumpled or something. And he would start saying something very sensible, and then after three or four sentences, he would veer off into double talk, and he'd make no sense. But, of course, it was an act. So the question right. I have to ask, Boyd Bushman, was that an act? I think a large part of it was an act. I think this is someone who has become very capable at speaking double talk and at evading answering questions because it seems to me like most of what happened was serious evasiveness. I don't feel that we had most of our questions answered, Gene. I really don't. Now, while we were online with him talking, I went and found on the Google Patents page that indeed he has been granted a number of patents. There's no question that this is a man who understands some very advanced concepts in physics, in energy science. I'm I'm not going to question that at all. Was he able to convey what he understood to us? Was he even in the position where he was open to conveying some real facts to us? Uh, uh, I... 
uh, are, are we going to hear that Bob Lazar is like the real thing that the government can go and delve into your books and remove all the pictures? I don't buy it. I mean, I just think that <laughs> ultimately we come out of this interview not really having a good idea of what Bushman has been involved with. We don't have any idea whether or not he really knows whether anything is going on in terms of the government having any recovered alien technology. The idea that the asteroid is going to definitively hit the Earth in 2036, I don't, I don't necessarily buy that either. I, again, based on what I know about that asteroid, there, there are some real hard questions about it. There are some concerns about it. But when people come out and make definitive statements... As we've said on the show before, and I'll say it again, it always makes my alarms go right on. He said a lot of things in a definitive way that I think is uh, a little irresponsible, quite frankly. Well, I know, listening to everything he said, the problem I had was not just the question of being irresponsible, but whether a lot of it was simply double talk. And that was a matter of really great concern to me because we yeah. seemed like a gracious gentleman. You know, mm -hmm. I have Absolutely. to tell you, I have to tell you, gracious gentleman. He greeted us with a sense of humor. He seemed to be aware of who and what we are, which was to some extent, yeah, to some extent. Yeah. So certainly that was encouraging. But you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that one of the things that we did is we let him essentially, basically, control the conversation. Was that a good idea? Mm, look, I know that right now there are some of our listeners who are hearing this wrap-up and thinking, oh, they're doing it again. The guest came on, and now they're bad-mouthing him. And I don't think we're bad-mouthing Boyd Bushman at all. As I said, clearly this is a, a knowledgeable man. I'm not going to question that he has patents in a number of areas. He uh, clearly does. These are documented. Do I believe more than 50% of what he had to say about things? No, I don't. Do I believe about 25% of what he had to say? Yeah, I'd say somewhere between 25 to 30% pertaining to his specific work. The stuff that is about his research, obviously he is knowledgeable about, no question. The idea that he can confirm or deny that there are derivatives of non-human technology at play here? No, I don't think that he established anything like that. And when we, you know, he's telling us about, oh, his friend of his has a beam and the friend's wife was lifted up in the beam. <laughs> Have you ever seen a compelling piece of video or compelling photograph of someone genuinely being levitated by an invisible beam? I haven't. I wonder here whether he believes his stuff or whether he's just an old man telling a lot of fun stories and having a great laugh over it. You mean like Phil Corso? Maybe that was Phil Corso's secret. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't pretend to know. Or this guy Bob Dean. Ultimately, I think that when people reach a certain age, that they feel that they can say anything they want. And people will be respectful and not question them because there's supposed to be a thing about the deference to the elder statesman. And that's all good and fine. But uh, that has nothing to do with the idea of these people ultimately saying things that we find to be credible or not. Again, when it comes to his own research, we would expect Boyd Bushman to be entirely knowledgeable and honest. 
And in that sense, I feel to a good extent he was. I find some very interesting aspects of what he was saying, and there were actually some questions I wanted to ask him about specific configurations of cylindrical magnets and how these deal with or how they relate to anti-gravity. Unfortunately, I didn't because he wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> so would we have him on again? Um, if you want to come back on, I'd say we'd have him on again, but we would have to control the conversation better because ultimately, Gene, if you ask me, I think this is the worst interview we've ever done. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's your decision. Do you think it's the worst interview we've ever done? Let us know, but we know yeah. that all things being equal, we'll likely be back next week on the PowerCast. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're very serious about this. If you think this was the worst episode of the PowerCast ever since we started the show back in February of 2006, or maybe you liked it, maybe you want to hear again from Boyd Bushman, maybe with intense questioning, we will get a handle on what he has to say. Send your letters to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Or better yet, put up a statement with your viewpoints in our spirit message boards at thepowercast.com slash forums thepowercast.com slash forums coming next week we have author and hypnotherapist dr bruce goldberg he'll talk about et's and time travelers in ancient egypt does he know something about that or what we'll find out in a future episode we also have coming up richard dolan one of our favorites a friend of the show and all that's coming up on the powercast in the future thanks for listening good night all the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.